Hi, welcome to the Holy Fuck Podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Roxo, author of Fuck Like a Goddess, creator of Radical Awakenings, transformational coach, and student of life. I'm here to stand with you asking questions about what is sacred and what is profane and the space between. Enjoy. Hello, hello. So good to be with you today. Hope this finds you well. On today's podcast, I have a dear friend, mentor, teacher, um, all around inspiring human, Michael Ventura. I've known him, as I reveal on the podcast, for I think over a decade. And he is just such an incredible, wise, rooted tree of a human. (laughs) So take in the medicine, my darlings, and enjoy. Hi, everybody. I am so happy to reunite today with an old friend, an old friend, also mentor, someone I used to go to receive energy work from in New York City many moons ago, actually starting about a decade ago when I was around 28 years old. Um, And I'm so happy to have Michael Ventura on the podcast with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here with you. Okay, because you have like many of my guests live a great many lives. And from where I'm sitting, a big life, a full life. Um, One that from the outside could look very exciting, uh, like you have had a lot of victories and triumphs professionally, maybe personally. I'd love to just hear the short version of your opening bio, just who you are, what you're up to what you've done um, professionally as well, just so people know that side of you. We're going to get into the side of Michael that I met, which is the energy worker, medicine man, who was working out of his ad agency building in the West Village in New York, which was such um, such a special place to meet him. But first, I want you to know all the other stuff that you know, he's accomplished along the way. Well, I guess if I think about a way to start that, it's that I've always loved ideas. And I've always loved helping people move through the block. And so if I think about those as two organizing principles, pretty much everything I've done since I have a memory has kind of lived in those two realms. As a a kid thinking about my future, I never imagined I would be an astronaut or a fireman. I, I imagined I would work with ideas. Mm. And and that was a weird thing to describe to people. And, you know, friends in the lunchroom sat at every table and I would hop between tables at lunch and, you know, sit with the athletes and sit with the AP class kids and sit with the the goth kids. And then, you know, they go bounce around among everybody because I had something mm. that spoke to me among all of them. And so I've kind of always just been a, a lover of, of people and their journeys and and my life in in work, you know, as you fast forward into adulthood, really started as an entrepreneur at 23, building businesses in New York uh, that were helping organizations first figure out digital, then experiential, then strategy, then culture. And every time we took a step forward, it was always getting closer to the people side of the business. It was getting a little farther from technology or storytelling or ads in a traditional sense and more about who are we what do we stand for 
What do we what, what do we care about? What kind of people should work here? What kind of people shouldn't work here? You know, those kinds of questions. And being an entrepreneur and being someone who has cared a lot about building stuff for others, uh, I often neglected myself. And mm -hmm. so a way that, that you met me was uh, the result of me not taking good care of myself and, uh, and finding a path of healing and self-care and exploration that I needed in order to mend the bits that were broken and then once I did and those wounds felt sturdier or more closed, uh, the first thought I had was, um, how do I do this for other people? And mm. so that was kind of what led me into practicing. And, uh, and then ultimately, you know, years later, uh, you walking in the door. Yeah. Well, what I love is, is about your story. And I know you kind of just gave the, the, the quick version, but we hear often that people are like in the corporate world or in the advertising world. And I have a little bit of this coming from film and TV and kind of going into healing, but, but we hear this story of like, I left my corporate job to become a spiritual person, you know, and with you, what I've loved is like, your story isn't that you didn't have to leave all of the skills and the, um, you know, the, the rich world that you created for yourself, obviously things have you know, changed and moved on your path. It's not like you've stayed in the exact same place, but when I met you, you're running in, in, you know, a marketing ad agency, and then you wrote a book called Applied Empathy, which then was also a card deck. Um, and you were running events out of your agency's building and also doing healing sessions out of your agency's building. And I'm just... You know, I'm curious, two, two questions is, what was that thing that set you on that healing path where you said you sort of, like many people, I think that work in an industry that can be very demanding, at a certain point, it catches up with you. So I'm curious, like, what was it that set you on um, your healing path? And then how did you integrate being a healer and also being a, a, a CEO, right? Like you're, that, that was your position, right? <laughs> so this is very, very unique, I think, for, for someone to go and, and lay on a table and do, um, be the client of someone doing energy work and shamanic work, who's also a CEO of a, you know, a big company <laughs> during the day. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it, it became less odd over time for me, but it wasn't, it wasn't natural, uh, at the first jump either. Um, you know, so what was the kind of crucible moment for me? It, it was, it was a lead up to it that, uh, included a lot of abusive tendencies and bad coping mechanisms and ways of dealing with stress that were unhealthy. And, Self-abusive or? Yeah. Okay. Not abusive to, to another, but like. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Just, you know. Just to make that distinction. <laughs> good, good <laughs> distinction. I'm glad you did. Um, and those things, you know, because of that stress of running a business at a young age with no safety net, you know, at some point we got up to 40 something people and I would walk in the door every day and, you know, we had no investors. It was all predicated on what we were doing that day and how that day would go. And. I would look around the room and I would see 40 something people for whom I was responsible for them to be able to pay their rent mm -hmm. or to buy groceries that week. Mm -hmm. And that stress 
really wore me down. And so when I would leave, I would go do all the drugs and do all the things that were bad in terms of taking care of my stress, because what I wanted to do was just numb myself. Yeah. And then one day I was changing the water cooler and I just saw white and I opened my eyes and I was laying on the ground and I had herniated three discs in my back and I couldn't walk. <gasps> and that I had to go to the hospital immediately because it didn't get better after like 12 hours. It actually, I lived six blocks from the office. It took me three hours to hobble home on a cane. Someone went to Dwayne Reed and bought me a cane and I just like <gasps> hobbled my way home. And I was like, I'm going to just like sleep it off. I'll be better tomorrow. And I wasn't. And so I went to the hospital and through MRIs and CAT scans and all the other stuff, they basically determined that I had bone on bone, herniated discs. There was like, you know, major spinal surgery was in the near future. And that didn't really feel right. And so I thought about how might I go at this a different way? And this was in the early aughts where wellness and alternative medicine was not as ubiquitous as it is now. And, yeah. you know, like this is like pre Pinterest, like to like put right. it in context for people right. where the very early days of the, of like social and, um, I had a friend who recommended acupuncture and I was like, I'll try anything before I go under the knife for this. And so I did and I left. And if I walked in with pain at a hundred, I left at pain at 99, right? Like it didn't cure oh. me, but it definitely was like a crack of light. And I was yeah. like, okay, I'm going to go back again. And I did again. And then I did a third time. And after three or four visits, the acupuncturist asked me, how do you handle stress? And I just started laughing. And then I explained to him what I do. And he said, I don't think you have a back problem. I think you have a stress problem. And uh -huh. it's manifesting in your back. And if we can work on the stress, the back may, feel, may feel, heal itself. And so uh, that began a path of a Taoist practice, which I still continue to this day, of Tai Chi and Qigong and Taoist meditation. Um, I really found that to be a way in the door to get to manage myself in a different way. So that journey with your with your back was what set you on well, your back being out, also everything that you were holding, it sounds like all the stress you were carrying. That's right. Yeah. That yeah. was my lack of stability. Yeah. Metaphorically yeah. and physically kind of, you know, they, they became one. The Venn diagram was a circle in that case. And so then what happened, though, was I did what a lot of people do. And I encourage a lot of people to do, which was I walked the spiritual buffet line and yes. I tried everything. And, you know, I did the raw thing and I went to, you know, just like you name it. Right. I did all of the things because I, A, that's just my t general tendencies, like try it all. And B, I wanted to see what spoke to me the most. And it ended up being a Taoist tradition and also an indigenous tradition were the two that to me clicked. Mm -hmm. And after both of those two teachers got me to a place where I was in control of myself a bit more. I asked them if they would teach me mm -hmm. and they both laughed right in my face. Oh my gosh. And I was like, Oh shit. Did I like overstep? And they both kind of said the exact same thing to me. They said, what do you think we've been doing for three years? Oh, wow. And I was, and the light bulb came on. I was like, Oh, right. Yeah. Like I'm my first student. I'm my yeah. first person I need to practice on. Right. And they were like, yeah, we've been teaching you since day one, dummy. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so that shifted a lot for me. But then, but then they also saw how, how earnest I was about really wanting to learn their traditions and, and, and go deeper. And so then that, that opened a door to training me in a different way. 
uh, which led to me ultimately starting to practitioner with other folks. Wow. I love that. I, and it's true. I think it's such a good thing for people to remember. It's that as you are healing, you're learning so much. You know, you're learning so much if you pay attention. Obviously, if you're if you're laying on the table while you're getting energy work or acupuncture and you're just thinking about what you're going to do later and you're not really, your awareness isn't in your body, then you may miss everything, you know? And I do think that's probably a modern phenomenon that people just like go and, you know, have a transactional relationship with a coach or a therapist or a healer without really staying fully present. It's like you're not just there to get something, but the whole experience of you being there, you are learning so much. You can learn so much. That's um, right. Yeah. Like, you know, think of any time you've had a, a, a practitioner work on you and like you get like a particular point gives you a little zap or a little like sense of a different sensation of some kind. That's a cool opportunity to ask, what does that point correspond to? Or what can yeah. I, you know, what, what can I learn about that? What feeling came out when they touched there? Right. Why did that come out? You know, and just that that little rabbit hole you can go down on a particular point or sensation or memory that emerges in those moments is the is the breadcrumb trail back to understanding your own trauma and your own story and beginning to heal it. Yeah. I love trying to figure out what my therapist is doing with me and She's taught me so much. And I now I'm very honest with her. I'm like, you know, you're my teacher too. She's like, I know. I'm like, I've no, I've learned so much just like being with her mm -hmm. and watching her mind work. And then my mind trying to understand her mind while I'm the, you know, the patient, I'm the, the client, I'm the one who's, you know, kind of getting dissected. But I do think it takes a certain amount of practice and awareness to be able to do that as well. And I'm curious for you, it's like, Stepping into that, were, was that your sort of, were there other practices? Were you practicing meditation or yoga or anything like that? Or was your, your kind of entree like, I'm going straight in because of pain and that's what's bringing me to healing? Like, what, or was there mm -hmm. another component present? There was a parallel path. It's, I frankly don't know if it was directly parallel, but it feels like around the exact same time as like when the, when the traumatic injury occurred, I was working with a teacher named Gil Barreto. Gil has since passed away. Um, I was sort of grateful to be the, the, the last student in his door before he decided that he wasn't going to let anyone else in. He had been teaching for 35, 40 years at this point. And Gil worked in a lot of traditions, but his primary force was organized around something called the Fourth Way, which is mm. a philosophy from uh, Gurdjieff, uh, who was a Eastern European mystic uh, in the 30s and 40s. And his philosophy was that historically people have pursued enlightenment of one in one of three ways, the way of the monk, the fakir or the yogi and the monk being a intellectual what was the middle one called F-A-K-I-R, fakir. Um, and we'll get there. Okay, um, okay. So <laughs> the, the monk being a dogmatic path, right? I, mm -hmm. An intellectualized path. This is my holy book. This is my scripture. This is the thing I will follow to pursue enlightenment. The fakir being a physical path toward enlightenment. So walk across hot coals or do things that transcend your physical body to help you step outside of it. Mm -hmm. And the yogi being a mindful path, an emptying path, a, a path of, of sort of up and out. And Gurdjieff's philosophy, the fourth way, was can you practice self-observation continuously 
in all three of those states and notice when some of them go to sleep. Mm. Are you aware of your physical body right now as we're talking? Are you aware of your posture and your breathing? Or is that unconscious because we're dealing with the intellectual self right now? And so that's the one who's got the front seat. And what about the mindful self? Have you emptied? Have you gotten personalities quiet enough to actually hear Mm. what's coming from a different place? Right. And so that dance, the answer is no, you can't keep it consistent, always present in all three at all times. But that's the training and that's the work. And uh, and so Gil was a, a fantastic teacher to me in, mm. in that tradition and gave me a set of tools that helped me realize how asleep I often was. Like a quick one just to take for anyone who's interested is if you are right-handed, I'm right-handed. If you're left-handed, do the opposite of what I'm about to say. But if you're right-handed, Gil would say when I was trying to sort of get out of the automatic state I was in, he said, and he had this great deep voice. He would say, what I'd like you to do is open every door with your left hand. Mm. And I was like, that's so easy. No problem. Okay. And I would walk out of his office 45 minutes later and get three steps and then look down at my hand and be like, shit, I just opened it with my right hand. I didn't do it. And then for weeks, I would start to get better at opening doors with my left hand. And I would still screw it up many times, but I would notice more. Sometimes I would have noticed for three hours and be like, I definitely have walked through doors with my right hand and I didn't even notice, right? And then eventually I got more present and more conscious of it. And I was going through doors with my left hand and I called him and I was super excited. I said, Gil, Gil, I'm opening doors with my left hand. He goes, great, switch back. And then he hung up. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, that was, that was what I needed to learn was that it's never going to be a finish line. Mm. Wow. Wow. That sounds like the type of like old school mystical teacher that everyone, well, everyone being me, that I, I, <laughs> that I think that we, we crave and whether we know it or not, like that type of um, closeness and wisdom, right? I think a lot of people nowadays are getting spiritual wisdom and advice from online classes and online sources and that sort of moment-to-moment interaction feels like a bit rarefied. Um, And then, yeah, I'm curious what you think about, like, are people still nowadays with our use of technology? Right now we're using technology to connect. And are people still getting the opportunities to touch the same level of mystical or spiritual depth within themselves? Like, or is that going to become like a very, you know, antiquated or rare event? Hmm. It's a good question. I think there is always going to be the option for it. It may be more rarefied. It may take a little, it will definitely take more work. No doubt about it. Yeah. But isn't that the work worth doing, first of all? And, and, you know, and second of all, there is an intangible quality to, aspects of doing that seeking and that committed work that that isn't as easy that makes it more of a lesson like for instance with Gil you had to wear shirt and tie when you met Gil really and if you didn't it was considered disrespectful wow and if you were not there five minutes early his door would lock and you missed your session and he lived out in the middle of Brooklyn in a very inconvenient place. And I would have to like come from work and like put a tie on on my way there on the train and like hustle. I remember running through streets coming out of the train sometimes because I knew that door was going to lock. And like if I got there one minute later, 
see you next week. You'd still you still pay for it. You still pay for the time, but you aren't getting a session. And that taught discipline in a way that it's way easy to just like pop on a Zoom and have a chat and pop off. Master Ru, my Taoist master, our Tai Chi practice was rain or shine, 8 a.m., South Street Seaport Pier, in five degree weather with snow up to our knees or 105 degree weather with 100% humidity. Didn't matter. We were going to be outside at 8 a.m. at South yeah. Street Seaport. And like those teachings, those physical teachings for me, going back to that fakir experience, right? Like they really helped me be physically present where sometimes when we're just doing this on Zoom, it's 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 easy to be half in, half out. It's easy to like take a peek at your phone while something pops up while you're talking to someone else or to like open a browser and answer something and then come back in. Uh, presence is uh, more difficult. It is. Yeah, it's so true. It scares me. I mean, just in terms of where we could be going, even though I trust the greater intelligence in this this realm that we are in this party that we're living within here. Um, but it does, I mean, it does scare me to feel that people are losing the ability to be able to bear the discomfort of being present with one another. And, you know, even younger people, my friend told a story the other day, my friend Cara, about a 16 year old who, you know, had walked into a cafe with her, her friend's kid. And was like, oh, I'm going to airdrop my Snapchat to these hot guys in the corner. And just like that was her way of flirting with them, you know, like right. it seems pretty aggressive to me to airdrop something to a stranger in a cafe. <laughs> like, you know, I definitely have accidentally almost done that a few times. I'm like, ah, on the airplane or something when I'm trying to airdrop my partner. But um, this notion of of the, the that that feeling of you running to to Gil's house or apartment and and like your heart beating fast and like kind of getting your shirt all on in order and um, knowing that if you're late you're gonna miss it that feeling that embodied experience of aliveness of risk um, mm -hmm. that it takes and and knowing that I mean partially the shift happened I think during the pandemic but that people don't have to take those risks anymore. And there's a beauty, obviously, in the interconnectedness that we're able to have this conversation right now. Um, and, like, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you if I hadn't been in the room with you many, mm -hmm. many times. You know, like, I need, I, I've been in rooms with you many times to be able to trust you, to feel you, et cetera. And, um, yeah, what do you think about that in terms of where we're going? And... I mean, it's kind of a big question, so answer it however you want. <laughs> this past summer, I was with a friend's father. He's a lovely man who I've gotten to know well over the years. He's in his mid-80s. And he's experimental. He, you know, he grew up as a, a professionally as a dentist, right? Like very like like standard job, nothing that would sound terribly experimental, but he has lived his life very experimentally outside of his profession. And he's raised a really wonderful son who's my friend. And we were talking about life and we were talking about the choices he's made. And I said, 
Norman, which is the perfect name for the dentist. Um, Norman, what do you think is the sort of secret to all of this? And he said, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much room. Mm. And I, that really hit for me because I think we've all gotten very comfortable not being on the edge. And that running to meet Gil is a perfect example of being right on the razor's edge of learning, of growing, mm. pushing our discomfort. It's, it would have been really easy to just hop on a Zoom and take those meetings. And in his convalescence, he moved out to the, the wilds of, of Pennsylvania. And so our final times with Gil were on Zoom. And nonetheless, still put a shirt and tie on. Yeah. Still sat there with him in that way because it was already ingrained in me that that's what you do. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope for, I hope for the generations to come that they do feel the value, um, in those, not even just the value, but like the living into the magical movie of your life mm -hmm. and that that is in those moments, you know, I, I mean, I recall walking up to your beautiful old red brick building in the West village and, feeling that feeling of like, oh, I'm going to go sit at a session with someone that I honor and I respect. And like, that would be kind of vulnerable and nerve wracking. And it may be like I had to take two trains to get there on a Saturday morning mm -hmm. and one of them wasn't working. And then, you know, you would often give me the egg from uh, the uh, a technique called Olympia, which is a Spanish word that you guys may know, which is part of one of the traditions that Michael practices in the Mexican curanderism. Um, and I would have this egg walking in New York City and I would, you know, find a place to throw it away and release it with its negative energy. And the whole thing was, the whole day was an experience or the whole, you know, it wasn't just go on Zoom for an hour. Um, and I'm grateful that I've had so many of those experiences and I hope that people continue them. And, um, yeah, I, I want to ask you, you know, this actually came up this week when I was giving counsel to a dear friend of mine, and I thought of a conversation that we had, which is interesting mm -hmm. that it came up before I was going to see you. Um, and the conversation was around partnership. And so I'm sharing this with my community here vulnerably. Um, but many moons ago, I think it was at Burning Man in... Was that 2018, 2019, perhaps? 2018. Right. I think it's 2018. Um, I asked Michael, I said, you know, can I ask you a question? It was very much one of those moments of like, I'm approaching someone that I really honor and respect with like a big question <laughs> in the middle of a de in the desert at this very, you know, specific context, right? It was, it's a very specific context. But I asked Michael, who's been married for many years, I said, Michael, do you think that as a spiritual practitioner or someone on a spiritual path that you have to, not have to, but well, kind of like that once you're on that path that you have to meet a partner or choose a partner who's also on a similar path than you. And do you remember what you said? Or do you remember that conversation? I, mean, I, I don't remember the conversation. I know that I would have said no, but I don't know how I put it to you. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it may have been... A pretty psychedelic week, <laughs> but, um, 
what you said was just like, no, you get to choose. You get to choose um, what you want. And you shared a little bit about your partnership in that moment. And so I would like to kind of re-ask you that question mm -hmm. now because I just shared this with a dear friend who, you know, is dating someone and kind of asking that same question. And I think at the time I was dating someone and I was like, does this person need to be on a similar path as I am? And so I'm curious what you think about that now, now we're in 2023, um, you've let us know how many years you've been married and, and so that we know. But um, yeah, what do you think about that these days as you who is someone who is deep on a path, like you're on a path, a deep spiritual path? Caroline and I have been together for 15 years, uh, married for 15 years. We've been together for 17 years and we met in our mid twenties. So, you know, we met, I know you have a lot of astrology people who listen to this. Yeah, so yeah. We met, we met pre Saturn return, right? Totally. So like, you know, we were very different people. The difference between like me at 25 and me at 32 was night and day. And we were already married for a few years by that point. We were married for almost five. Mm -hmm. And so, when I think about all of that and how time evolves and changes, the partnership shouldn't be a way to confirm your insecurities or curiosities about whether or not you're on the right path because you've got someone on the same path with you, mm. right? So if you're looking for someone to co-sign the path, that's not necessarily a prerequisite for partnership. Yeah. And when I think about the work that I've done and the work Caroline's done, our ways into the work have been very different and our practitioners have at times been very different. Our paces have been different. Our interests are everything because that's what makes it interesting. How boring to just be with someone who loves every similar thing as you. Yeah. And, you know, like that, that diversity is what spurs conversation in our lives and curiosity and, uh, and disagreement, which is fantastic too. Yeah. You know, one, at one point in our marriage, we had, to put it in the, in the terms of my therapist, we had run out of dopamine Mm -hmm. And so we were forced with a different way of commitment. So, it, you know, in the beginning, it's great because you get those squirts in your brain when you're around the person you love. And that will inevitably at some point slow down. It's, yeah. it's science, right? That will stop happening. And so when that stops happening, you're not running on chemicals. You're running on choice. Mm -hmm. Do I still choose this person even when I don't get high being around them in that way? And that's a whole different kind of marriage, which is really cool if you're willing to do that work. And the ups and downs of it led us at one point to go to couples therapy uh, to learn how to manage through the, the choice portion of marriage. And she told us, you need to learn how to fight. Mm. She said, because you are both conflict avoidant because you love each other so much, but there are is inevitable there are inevitable moments in your life where conflict will emerge and you have to learn how to do so productively. And yes, you may get upset with each other and you can disagree without being disagreeable. And I'm going to show you how to some ways to do that. And that was a very valuable teaching at a good time. 
And so as time goes on, you know, what, what we want or what I want and hope, and, and I think I speak for Caroline too, is, you know, our, our paths will look like two sine waves that are moving sometimes in sync and sometimes not, but hopefully both on an up and to the right trajectory. Hi, everybody. Quick interlude here because I want to tell you about my group Radical Awakenings. It's an online community space for wild women, for smart women, for women who love to engage in spiritual practice, who don't go to traditional temple or church, but want to create their own temple space where we can practice embodiment and ritual, where you can stand in front of the group and ask questions, feel your feelings, express your rage, your grief. We can laugh together. We can write together. We can speak and pray in the way that we know in our bones how to do together. So I've been leading spaces like this for a very long time. My first women's circle I led back in 2002. I'm super devoted to creating safe and sacred spaces for women to come together, to play, to express, to embody, to feel, to grieve, to open, to inspire each other. Sacred sisterhood is super important to me and not in some let's fix each other sugar-coated dress all in white version of spirituality. Of course, you know me. That's not how I roll. The women that come to my programs, they're smart, they're change makers, they're visionaries, they're crossing thresholds and initiations, they're going through dark nights of the soul. They've got tattoos, they've got babies, they're birthing books, they're making radical changes in their lives. Of course, you don't have to have tattoos or babies or books in order to be with us, but all are included. We are a beautiful motley crew of women who have one sacred goal, to come together to honor these bodies, these hearts, to honor our spiritual practice day to day, not as something we just do on a yoga or meditation retreat, but something that is incorporated and integrated into our lives. We bring rituals into the homes, we make altars, we live by the stars and the moon, we live by the cycles, and we come together to reclaim something that we know to be true. So I would love to invite you to the next iteration of Radical Awakenings. We meet twice a month and you get the recordings if you can't attend live with all kinds of bonuses included in the program as well. So look in the show notes. There's a link to join, bring a friend. We would love to have you, to hold you, to be with you as we all continue to walk this wild and weird human life together. That's really helpful. And I think nowadays I've seen that it feels like it's a little in vogue to sort of be on the exact wavelength of your partner or, you know, sort of have that bubble of we do this mm-hmm. or, or that. And and I, I, I really appreciate the differences in my own partnership, which is still in its early years. But hearing that you guys have been on this journey for 17 years – and gone through Saturn's return, and I'm sure many other sort of turning points is so inspiring. Thanks. Also, yeah. Also, I just loved that. Like, I I remember also asking you, I was like, just you were Burning Man solo. And like, for me as a woman, like to imagine my partner going to Burning Man solo, I would just bring up all my anxious attachment stuff. Let's be real. <laughs> and I just imagine, I'm like, who is this incredible woman? <laughs> 
that doesn't go to Burning Man with her partner, at least back then, didn't and fully trusts him. I was like, they must have a really awesome marriage or relationship for that to be able to happen. I think, you know, most people you hear embarking on peak experiences or things like that, that if one person doesn't do it with the other person, like, are they going to get left behind or... Is, is it okay to have that much individuation? And I'm curious, were there ever moments where you were scared? I, would, I won't ask about Caroline because she's not here, but were there moments where you were scared? Like, oh my God, I, what if I grow in this opposite direction? Or what if I go on this, you know, medicine ceremony or this uh, peak experience and I, it takes me away from my partner? If I didn't think that way, I wouldn't care about her. Right. And so I, of course I had those thoughts because it was my own concern about losing the most important person in my life. And yeah. so of course they're going to come up and there have been times where those have been harder experiences or where they've surfaced things that have had to get worked through individually or together. And not all of them have been rosy uh, because they, because they won't be. And anyone who tells you that they all are is probably not being honest. And at, at mm -hmm. some point, Caroline made a choice to, instead of just not go to Burning Man, she started doing a very intentional thing at that same time every year for herself. She would pick a place mm -hmm. she wanted to go to and maybe she'd go with a girlfriend, maybe mm -hmm. she wouldn't, maybe she'd do an art retreat. Maybe she would just go and read a, a book for a week somewhere far flung where she could be by herself, you know, all of these sort of things. But it wasn't mm -hmm. like a uh, gap filling because I'm away. It was a conscious choice because she can make that anytime she wants. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you work with those, you know, fears or stories or insecurities or, you know, whatever you want to call them within yourself over the years? Is it what supported you or was it conversations with her or friends or community or what supported you also to have the courage, the courage to actually go out and individuate and make your own risky decisions, but also to hold your own heart, your man, so maybe different for you, but I imagine, you know, but to hold your own heart, um, as you, as you take those courageous mm -hmm. risks. There's a really great talk online that if you've seen it already, um, you can tell me and I'll, I'll paraphrase it shorter, but it's, it's, it's from a, a, a teacher named Rabbi Tversky, where he talks about how lobsters grow. Have you ever seen this? Okay. I'll tell you the short version of it because it answers your question. So the way a lobster grows is that inside that hard, rigid shell, it's it's expanding. Its body is still growing, even though the shell has stopped having any flexibility. And so at a certain point, it's pressing up against the shell. And the lobster consciously or unconsciously knows that if it doesn't get out of there, it's going to die. The pressure and the discomfort of living in the shell it's built for itself that once gave it security is now giving it a death sentence. And so the only way for the lobster to survive is to wriggle out of that shell and be this gray, raw, vulnerable thing 
susceptible to predators, totally alone, and survive in that vulnerability long enough to molt and grow another shell that's big enough for it to have that comfort and safety and security again for a little while. And Mm -hmm. so the motivator for growth is discomfort. And in order to quell that discomfort, we must be vulnerable. And through that vulnerability, we will find security again. And so Mm -hmm. I think that arc is the arc that all of this kind of work is about. And if it's easy, maybe you're not pushing it hard enough. Maybe you're not, as Norman put it, living close enough to the edge. Maybe you're taking up too much room. And so as we start to find those areas of our life, those, those spaces where we can get to the discomfort, they are going to show us what vulnerability really feels like. And it's only in that space that we're going to get the lessons that we actually need. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that with a lobster. Yeah. Anytime you hear a rabbi regale the merits of shellfish, it's kind of funny. But then like... <laughs> I know. That's the most not, not kosher thing ever. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm gonna, I just want to go, I want to pry a little deeper with this, but how did you hold your heart in those moments? Like, how did you hold your fears? Did you call your friends? Did you call your dad? Did you guys make a pact? Did you like, what, what give us some of the, I mean, the, what supported you in the moment where you're like, ah, I'm going to take a risk. Mm-hmm. I, I, this is bringing up a lot for either one party or both parties, or maybe she's taking a risk. Give us a little practical yeah. on that. Not that I don't love the lobster. The lobster is great. Totally get it. No, I mean, like, there's not, there's not an answer, right? So that, so to me, to me, I like know. the sometimes it was my therapist. Sometimes okay. it was my journaling and meditative practice. Sometimes it was a friend. Sometimes it was two days alone crying and just like working through yeah. my shit. Sometimes. Okay. Thank you. We needed to hear that. We all need. Sometimes it was a a (laughs) ceremony, you know, like all of those things and more are the tools we have. Right. And you have to know what those tools are. Like there were, there are times in our lives where particularly with Caroline and I, where I have a shorthand with her, where I say, I need to blow the cobwebs off, which means I'm stuck. It means I am encountering something that's, that's sluggish and I'm going to go do some work on myself for a couple days to work through that. And sometimes that's in ceremony. Sometimes that's just like being alone with my thoughts and working it out. Mm -hmm. And, but like when I say I've got to blow the cobwebs off at this point, she knows exactly what that means. And she's like, great, let me know what you need. If you need anything for me, otherwise see you when you're back. And that could be six hours from then. Mm -hmm. It could be two days from then. Um, But that's kind of how I, how I need to operate in order to, keep my, my feet on the ground as we go forward. Mm-hmm. I think that's just so helpful to hear. It's just, I find that there's, there's so many books out there on relationship or conscious relationship or how to do a relationship, but it's still obviously so unique to each person or each couple and I find that sometimes I'm I'm yearning to read about the hard times or to hear about them. They're so vulnerable, and I feel like it's still quite new even for people to, even within a community, to share about them. You know, uh, say at a dinner mm-hmm. table or something, and I have found 
where I've sat with certain couples and they're sharing kind of vulnerably about their own obstacles or trials, it's awkward. <laughs> it's like you, you usually use humor mm-hmm. or like, you know, it's there's there are these tools of deflection unless you're in a sort of um, specifically held container, right? Like a couples sure. group or a, a therapy session or uh, some sort of a ceremony where there's a, a really clear time and space and leadership, et cetera. And I do feel like sometimes I yearn for the good old fashioned, like just storytelling aspect as if our elders could sit and go, well, yeah, sometimes I cry two days before I tell my partner, hey, I'm needing to go on this two week adventure Mm -hmm. without you. And it's not because I don't love you. Like that type of um, passed along wisdom. I'm not sure. I'm curious for... Uh, you did that come from your parents from their marriage? Did you see that modeled in terms of how to be in relationship in a way that felt right to you? Um, so my folks are still together, still alive, still happy. Um, they were high school sweethearts. They are, you know, it's it's pretty saccharine in some ways because it's it's not this typical story, right? So, you know, I'm sure that they have had their challenge. I know they've had their challenges at times, but like it was never really on display. And the work that they did on their relationship was not something that I saw in its messiness. I think I probably just saw the, if it was messy, it happened behind closed doors. And then like, it wasn't messy when, when, the, kid, when the kids mm-hmm. saw it, right? So, um as a model of like stick to and as a model of how, you know, uh, people who had a vision of a life they wanted to create and then went out and did it and raised two kids and all of that for sure, you know, great, great role models there. But um, no, I guess in my end of things, the, the way I've learned and gotten to, an understanding of how to, how we dance it came through trial and error and and fucking it up a lot and being sorry yeah. and being hurt and hurting and all of those things which mm-hmm. you just probably you know not uh, 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 the only way to recommend doing that but I think for for us our acknowledgement that our marriage was special and that it was something worth fighting for made it clear that even mm-hmm. in tough moments we would try to push through together yeah what a beautiful commitment to do that for 17 years I do think that's unique nowadays I think nowadays I hear more people sort of not sticking mm-hmm. with it. It's easier. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell me more. Why do you think it's <laughs> easier? <laughs> well, because, because it's easy to go get that dopamine squirt again. It's waiting yeah. there for you. And yeah, the, you know, there was a there was a podcast that I didn't listen to, but I saw pop up as a quote recently. Um, that Ezra Klein said that the the one uh, thing in human existence that uh, we require one hundred percent performance on is monogamy. That like you know, as as humans, there are there are often like you know a, a foot fault is enough to destroy a marriage, 
and not in all cases, obviously, depending on how you've negotiated your relationship. But monogamy specifically is, um, you know, it doesn't have a lot of wiggle room. And it was an interesting podcast. It was a New York Times one, if anyone wants to check it out, uh, where it goes into that in more detail. I read a couple articles about it, but actually haven't listened to it yet. Um, all of that to say, I think one of the things that's really interesting about being in a partnership for this long is the time that you get where you re-up and reassess where you're going. So, for example, these last two years, Caroline and I have moved outside of New York City and we're living in a very different pace than we've ever lived before. We live on a little place with 3,000 people around us and it's quite isolated. And we check in on that pretty regularly with each other. Is this still working for you? Is this still working for you? Okay, good. We'll chat, we'll chat again in a few months and we'll just make sure because it's so new, right? So when you're in those spaces, it's okay to like sense check. And if Caroline said, you know what, this is running dry and like, I gotta, I gotta do something else. Then we'd sit down and have a conversation about it. But, but we're, but we're mindful of the fact that this is such a systemic change to our lives that it requires a little more frequency on the check-in than it did when we were living in the same space in the West Village for a decade and life was, while rich, um, a little more predictable in some ways. Yeah. And how often over the 17 years do you feel like you reach those turning points or those points of reassessment or recommitment? Have you sensed a pattern? Mm. I wish I did. Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> I, think what I've, I think what I've sensed is um, I know what the little bubbles in the pot feel like before we reach a rolling boil. And so... That. Go ahead. <laughs> um, that is, I think, the, 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 the best I could get to in pattern is that going back to a teaching from Gill, self-observation of noticing when like the, you know, things are getting a little warmer. It's not quite a rolling boil, but like there's some stuff bubbling and I should pay attention. Yeah. I was just going to say that is the wisdom. <laughs> like just that, like that. I think that learning that discernment of like, not just, you know, it's kind of like acupuncture, homeopathy, or, you know, where you're, you're sort of, moderate tracking little things and little symptoms. So you're not waiting to go to the doctor when there's like a full blown acute experience. Um, and I think that is part of our own spiritual practice, energetic practice, checking in with ourselves. If we stay awake to ourselves and our own experience. And I also know from kind of going through this next phase of uh, self-exploration and awareness in relationship that it's a whole nother level to be on your, uh, it's one level to be on your own, uh, paying attention to your cues and signals and your needs and your dreams and your points of expansion, tracking your own wounding, and then doing it within a partnership because a whole nother set of patterns and unconscious behaviors come forward. And so and something I've been kind of tuning into a lot lately is um, where we ignore those cues. We ignore the little rolling, 
bubbles because it's really inconvenient, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> um, it, it, it can feel inconvenient, right? Like that's the sort of our interpretation often, I think, from our modern point of view is, ooh, it's inconvenient to sit down and to have this conflict, right? And to have a conversation that could lead to a conflict. So I'm just going to bargain and rationalize inside my own mind to not have to do that. Like, I think it's common for many people, depending on kind of what side of the pattern you fall, but to, to, to say things like, oh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Why am I making a big deal out of that? Like, it's fine, whatever. That sort of justification to not go, oh, there's a little bubble in our relationship. Like, let's, let's just attune to it together. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Um, it re it yeah. also, to, to me, is when running a, my businesses, but also in this relationship, I, I would say that I would say this to my teams a lot. Um, when you've run a business for a long time, which is not dissimilar to being in a relationship for a long time because of the it, the the entanglement in a positive sense that you have with with the entity, the other entity. Um, it's like wearing a piece of clothing that, you know, where it's comfortable and where it's not where it doesn't have space to stretch and where you can turn in this position or not. Like you kind of wear your relationship, like a, like a well-worn, uh, article of clothing and you kind of feel it on you and around you in a way that, you know, it's contours and you know where it's comfortable and you know where it needs mending and you know where it's uncomfortable and you know what you can and can't do in it and um but like anything it can it can be tailored and it can be adjusted as time goes on yeah yeah and the, that's beautiful even the most beautiful precious things over time do need that special kind of mm -hmm. care um i'm curious because more and more i hear people turning away from monogamy in the conscious kind of community. Has it ever felt, and maybe this is too personal and you know, you can always veto me and I can cut it out, but um, has it ever felt like, wow, I don't know if this path of monogamy is for me or my friends are pressuring me and going, wow, you guys have been together for so long. Here's what we're doing over here. You know, we're opening up our marriage or has that been something that you've had to uh, face in community and conversation uh, with yourself and or friends as much as you mm -hmm. want to share? It, it doesn't really come up a lot in, and, I, and you know me enough to know I've got a pretty diverse friend group, but I think, you know, there's also a, a sense that if it was something we wanted to talk about, it's not taboo to talk about it, but, you know, we're sort of in a place where that's not really something we're, we're, we're engaging in, but it relates to something that does come up or did at least for a while more so for us um, in a similar territory, which was the fact that since we were about 30 years old, we have been childless by choice and that we have chosen to be in a relationship that doesn't want to have children. And, you know, there was a lot of talk about that at times where people mm. were like, but you guys would be such great parents. 
yeah, we know. We know we'd be great parents. That's cool. <laughs> we don't want to have kids. It doesn't matter. Like, I, you know, I might be a great archer also, but, you know, it's like I'm not changing my career to go try to pursue archery either. Like there are certain things I've chosen right. that this is what I'm going to do. And that's where we are. And, you know, having the the agency to make those choices and the respect for each other to honor that that might change over time. But um, again, that those checking back in moments and seeing like, are you still good on that? We've talked about that many times since we were 30 and said like, hey, we're still good on yeah. that, right? You still feel the same way? And then like, it's usually like an emphatic yes from one of us. And we're like, okay, cool, me too. Just making sure. And then we keep going. Wow. And do you think people are, I guess this is the second part of my, do you think people are missing out by not, by giving up on monogamy, which we sort of touched on earlier with that it requires a certain something not to get the dopamine hit? I'm just curious because I don't hear that many people that have been married for 17 years, Michael Ventura. <laughs> you know, like I'm like, we're talking to maybe a, a rare breed here. I hear so many people all the time. I'm in a monogamous relationship, but I hear so many people all the time, um, especially in the conscious community, just walking away from that path or sort of justifying themselves out of that path. And as someone who's living that life, like, can you, can, what do you think about people turning away from it? Do you have an opinion on that? Do you have a, like, do you have a stance on, um, obviously I know you're, you're probably like you do you boo boo, you know, but, 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 but besides that, um, yeah. What do you think about so many people like in the conscious space kind of turning away from a monogamous path? You're not going to like my answer to this because uh, it, it is okay. kind of what you said. I don't, I, it's not okay. my place to have an opinion on what someone wants for themselves okay. in that way. And I think it would be too broad of a brush. Okay. Which is fine. I'm not trying to make you the emblem, emblem of monogamy, but um, I'm just, I'm always curious because I'm forming my own opinions around it, yeah. you know, and I hear a lot of people, um, especially in LA, also in Boulder where mm -hmm. I live now. Um, it's just like a common thing. I was talking to my therapist and she's like, yeah, we're going through another wave. Like these things happen in waves where there are certain trends, whether it be, you know, around drugs and alcohol, whether it be around a certain sexual lifestyle, that there are certain trends that come up and they have a wave and then they shift. Yeah. And, and what I've seen in LA and in Boulder too, is like, there's like such a wave, such a poly open marriage wave that I felt like a bit of an outsider because I'm like, I'm not wanting that. And, yeah. Well, it's um, also, I mean, I think if you look at it circumstantially, we've just spent three years indoors by ourselves with our partners. Right. And so, so there's right. also a stir craziness that some people have because they just want more stimulation and that's not true for everybody, right. but I'm sure that that's a, that's a, uh, it would be surprising to me if the pandemic did not play a role in that trend. In that trend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's no right or wrong. I really yeah. also am on the you do you kind of a tip. And I'm always curious if certain, certain traditions or certain ways of being will become extinct altogether. Mm -hmm for humans, you know, and maybe not in all sectors of humanity at once, but I'm, I'm always like, wow, what if that's what we're moving towards, you know, as a greater species, mm -hmm. who knows, who knows? 
goodness. Um, that would be a long way to go because there are a lot of Christians in this country <laughs> who are super monogamous and stuff like that. So just because I hang out with like the spiritual folk or the burners does not, it's not an indication of the global population. <laughs> real. Um, so just to finish, finish out our conversation, and I really appreciate you going into the partnership yeah. and marriage stuff, which I hadn't even kind of planned in going in that direction, but I knew that whatever gold that my heart and the community needed would come forward, you know, from you and, and you have a lot of different things to offer. But one thing that I ask everyone is to share some sort of a mystical experience that you've had, um, that you feel is shareable and, you know, shareable in a certain amount of truncated mm -hmm. time. Um, obviously there are many that could come into your awareness, but for those people out there who are listening, who are maybe new on the path or, um, would act, would really love to hear the story from a wise person, perhaps an elder who is, um, for, you know, longer into their path or journey. The first thing that came up is actually because probably we're talking about my relationship um, and uh, sort of an interesting intersection of my trusting my intuition and Caroline trusting hers, which was many years after we had been married, Caroline went to see a medium who has since become a very dear friend of ours. She's an exceptional medium. Her name's Michelle Murphy. She's in Canada. You should track her down. And <laughs> um, Michelle said to Caroline when she first met her, not knowing anything about her history, oh, you had a contract. And Caroline was like, what do you mean? She goes, well, you and Michael, you had a contract when you were coming here and you didn't want to come back. He's like probably less than a year older than you. She's like, yeah, he's six months older than me. And she's like, yeah, so you didn't want to come back, but you had an agreement that if you didn't want to stay, you could have an out clause did you sign anything like life and death related and then like soon after meet Michael? And when Caroline was 24, she had had a stroke. It's a long story, but um, she was on a table where they had to give her a very extreme blood thinner and that blood thinner would run the risk of causing internal bleeding and killing her. But she had no choice if she wanted to survive the stroke, she had to get the injection. And so she signed the piece of paper that said, give me the shot. They gave her the shot. It broke up the blood clot. Six months later, we met. And we've been together ever since. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, oh, so, wow. So wait, recap <laughs> before you guys came to planet earth, that was Michelle's way of putting it was that the two of you, the yes, two yes, of you yes. do work together and you are a bonded pair and you wanted to come back because you <laughs> felt like there was more to do in this incarnation. And Caroline had had enough. She didn't want to come back and do this thing again. I feel you, Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, nope, got stuff to do and then left. And so, you know, she like begrudgingly put her boots on and like came short af shortly after and uh, but had her out clause um, when she chose to live. Uh, okay. Soon thereafter, we met and it was. You okay. Know, so that was it on that table after that stroke, if she didn't take the blood thinner, she would have likely died. Possible. Yeah. And possibly, possibly died and left this incarnation. And then she, you would have been hanging so And low. we had lived in the, she we, we were neighbors in years prior to that and never met. We had been to the same house party for a new year's Eve party and never met at that. Like, so we were like, we had near misses for years and never had connected. And then she yeah. signed and then boom, six months later, 
I walked into a, a, a house in California and she was sitting there and that was it. Whoa. And were you guys both living in New York? No, she was living in California. I was and in New York. She was. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Wow. Ooh, I love that. I, I don't know if you've ever read the books, um, journey of souls or destiny of souls or heard, of, heard them. of them. I haven't read them. They're okay. There's uh, they're so cool. I really appreciate them, but it, basically the, the doctor is, studying near death experiences and he does like hypnotherapy and he starts, he stumbles upon lives between lives mm -hmm. and essentially the place right after the death. So uh, instead of studying the actual just near death moment, he starts in hypnosis studying what happens right after. And uh, he shares all these cases in the books and they're so far out, but they're also so aligned. And it's this kind of stuff. It's this kind of stuff. It's like, okay, we just, you know, we just cross over to the other side. Like, what do you need to do for me this life? And what do you need to do? I don't want to go. I want to go, you know, like, and, and it's so, I found it to be so, such a, a relief to know, like I came with my people, yeah. we have contracts. And I remember there was this one piece I was listening to when I, I had moved from LA back to New York in 2018 for like a little stint, which was when I was like, I want to come apprentice mm -hmm. with you. And then I ended up going back to LA, but um, I remember uh, reading that book, the second one during that time. And it was like soulmates and it was like, well, what happens if you miss the, you know, the meeting point with the soulmate and he's doing the hypnotherapy with, you know, a client who's like, well, there's several opportunities and there's a whole team of like people, other souls that are going to make sure you guys meet. Right. Um, so that there's, you know, there's a foolproof plan, <laughs> you know, for these contracts, these contracts that we have, or these, this soul family, like there's no way that we won't meet these people. Um, and I found that to be so relieving, you know, to my little pee of a human mind of like <laughs> conscious mind of like, Oh, okay, cool. Like, yeah, there's like another version of me in this other realm who's really tracking and planning and all of this. And I just, I just have to sit back and enjoy the ride and open my heart and be available and listen and all of this. Right. It's not just, the, the, it's not just the universe is conspiring for your abundance for sure. You just got to be willing to accept it. Yeah. Well, that's so cool. Thank you for sharing that experience. And I'm so, um, I love just kind of imagining you guys' souls on the other side. What are your astro signs? Last question. Uh, I'm a Cancer Sun, Sag Moon, Scorpio Rising. Also, and what's Stellium and Virgo, if, if you care to know. So it okay. gives me a little. I don't know. Stellium. It's just like a, more than three planets. So I like extra, extra Virgo wow. tendencies, despite not being part of my oh, like, okay. natal big three. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And Caroline is a Pisces Sun. Pisces rising and Scorpio moon. Oh, wow. Wow. What an uh, awesome combination from a fellow Pisces son. I know what it's like to be that soul <laughs> that says, I'm I don't know if I want to go back down there. It's crazy. Have you seen those machine guns and stuff? Oh my God. What kind of planet is this? <laughs> Supposedly we Pisces are, you know, old, old souls mm -hmm. on, on the rung of the astrology. <laughs> Yeah. So thank you so much for taking the time today. 
I mean, you guys, Michael's done a great many things. If you go to his Instagram, you can see him speaking on stages across the world. You can read his book. He has another book that's going to be coming out really soon. He has an amazing card deck that you can use to sort of work with your own internal archetypes around empathy, which is also really epic. And what else? Did I miss something? No, you're good. I've done. Oh, and and you can book a session oh, with yeah. him. That's true too. I don't know if you can pitter patter up to his door anymore since he's not in the West Village, but you can book a, a virtual session. And, right? No, I still I see people out here on this funny little island, and then also um, twice a month in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. you do? Oh, awesome. Okay, so if you're in the New York area or if you feel like traveling to New York to do an in-person session with Michael, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, and if you go to Burning Man, I've tried to send so many people to your Burning Man camp the last few years. I'm like, go get a session from Michael at Burning Man. But if you go to Burning Man, Michael has an amazing camp that he runs called Laka Laka. And um, he does incredible sessions there. So that would that could set you on a, a whole adventure to find the camp, to find <laughs> I've really tried. I had a few few women this last year who were like, we tried, we couldn't find it. I was like, guess it wasn't meant right. to be. <laughs> we, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing just to touch on that quickly. I mean, we've been doing that for a long time, that camp now. This will be my, uh, my, my 14th burn this year. And um, people, I've, I've seen people every year for, for as many years as we've run it. And they come back because this is a mile marker for them too. And it's beautiful. You know, we treat over a thousand people in that week uh, in all kinds of modalities. So yeah, if you're out there, track down Laka Laka, we're out there. Yeah, it's it was such a beautiful when I stayed at the camp. It was such a beautiful way to meet um, some people that have been following me on Instagram and came and sat in front of me and I just put my hands on their hearts. And it was just such a magical experience. Um, and there are so many great practitioners, I think, that are probably come through your mm -hmm. camp and uh, also give back. So Thank you so much for just sharing so vulnerably and going deep about your marriage and relationship. Really appreciate that and your own healing journey too. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to do it. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. For more, 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 follow me on IG at Alexandra Roxo, and you can get on my mailing list where I send poems, practices, rituals, links to upcoming retreats and events and all kinds of goodies. And if this podcast has touched your heart, please let us know. Please write us a review. Give us a five-star rating. All of that. It means a lot to myself and everyone involved. Big, big love, my darling. Have a fabulous day and see you again very soon. <laughs>